really, really important to give you the opportunity to not only interact with Rebbeim, not only interact with uh, Rashi Yeshiva and people who spend their life in the world of the base Medrash, but it's really important also to, to, to see and to recognize that there are people who are out in the world, in the business world, in various, in various uh, forms of uh, business and various forms of uh, involvement in, so to speak, the real world. And, uh, and the reality is that many of us in the room are going to find ourselves one day at a job, at a desk, or somewhere on the road. And to be able to have a model of, of a person who is very much in that world and at the same time sees himself as a, as a person of the base medrash, a person who tries to fill his every moment with, uh, with Torah and mitzvot, is something that's very important for us to see. To know that there can be such a thing, that it's not a contradiction to being a person who's uh, making a living for himself and providing for his family financially, and, uh, and a person who's generous in terms of the, the broader Jewish community, but at the same time, a person whose who's ikr and his focus is, uh, is Torah and mitzvot. And certainly someone who I've gotten to know over the last couple of years and have, uh, have this close to have a relationship with, and someone who, who inspires me with the emails he sends me reminding me, check out this shir, check out that shir. It's an amazing thing to, uh, to see someone, again, so inspired, and uh, someone who's not learning in yeshiva and continues to be a growing Jew outside the base medrash, um, and that's Daniel Gibber, who we have this list to, uh, to hear from today. So uh, it's a great covet to have you with us, and uh, we look forward to being inspired by, uh, by your life and by your message. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ramosh Tzvi. So I just want to make three comments before I share some remarks today. First and foremost, this is a tremendous cover gadol for me to be here today. Uh, I want to thank specifically Ramosh Tzvi for inviting me, uh, and really everybody in the room. Um, I could go on for hours speaking about uh, Ramosh Tzvi and how much he's inspired me the last few years. I can only say that the guys in this room who have the this to uh, to learn from him, it's you don't you don't recognize the unbelievable opportunity that you have, not only to speak the lashon of the intellect, the moach, the lumdus, but to me equally as important the lashon of the neshama, which to me is very very inspiring. I also want to uh, publicly thank Rabbi Cement, who I see in the room here, who has inspired not only myself but my children very very deeply. And uh, he doesn't even, also doesn't know the impact that he's had in, in a very positive way. So I want to thank you again for having me. Second of all, I'd like to just mention that uh, my remarks today, I'd like to dedicate uh, Nishmas, my two grandfathers, Elimel Chaim ben Yumiahu Alevi, Charles Goldner, and Yitzhak ben Aryelev, um, Isidore Gibber. There's nothing I could say to give covet a Torah or to speak anything connected to Torah without mentioning them. And hopefully if I have a few minutes towards the end of my remarks, um, I will try to uh, just share a story or two about them. That, that's really inspiring to me. Thirdly, this is very important, uh, I want to stress, I'm really not here to give any Musr whatsoever. I'm not in any position uh, to give Musr. I'm really here to share some stories. And perhaps some of those stories might inspire one or two. Uh, but any Musr, if it sounds like I'm giving Musr, I want to make clear I'm speaking, I'm speaking entirely to myself. So with that in mind, one of my Rabbeim, in addition to the, to the Rabbeim I just mentioned, uh, one of the Rabbeim who's really inspired me in my life, and I'm sure there are many in this room who've 
also had the cover to uh, to learn from him is Rav Moshe Weinberger, who I know is, is not here for a few months, uh, but I can go on for many, many hours telling stories that inspired me. And he's spoken many times about Sipuri Maisios, um, and I've heard him say many times about Rabbi Nachman, who said, Baderech Siparti Maisios. Baderech, on, on my journey, on my travels, I began telling stories. Lahavdil a thousand times, I'm not Chasr comparing myself to Rabbi Nachman. But perhaps my, my task here in the next few minutes, I'd like to tell a few stories. Stories about a journey, stories about my journey, maybe stories about some other journeys, and, and perhaps, uh, perhaps one or two you might be able to relate to some of this. So I'd like to start with a Chabad mashal that I've heard from Rav Weinberger. Uh, it's a, it's, there's two versions of this mashal. Um, there's a uh, Breslov mushal and there's a Chabad mushal. I've heard Rav Weinberger tell both. And I, I'd like to share the Chabad mushal, which is a mushal of Rav Hillel Paracher. Uh, Rav Moshe Tzvi can speak a lot more than I can about who Rav Hillel Paracher was, but I understand he was one of the earliest Chabad Hasidim, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the mushal goes as follows. It takes place in an old shtetl in Europe, maybe 100, 200 years ago, if you can picture this, uh, this story happening. And it's a typical, typical Yid who's going through life, and he's got the ups and downs and the trials and tribulations of life. And one day, somebody sings him a niggin, a tune. He hears a niggin. And this, this niggin, for that two, three minutes, is so inspiring, it, like Mamish carries him to another place. He forgets all his worries, forgets all his challenges. It's an unbelievable feeling for him. But this is 100, 200 years ago. So there are no MP3s, there are no iPhones, there are no recordings. And the next day, this Yid wakes up, and he's desperate to hear this niggin again. That feeling he had for those two, three minutes were just so unbelievably inspiring, he was desperate to recapture that. So he starts going around this town and describing it to people. You know, maybe you know this niggin, I don't remember it, I'm trying to hear it. And people would try and sing, and it just wasn't quite right. And over a period of months, he becomes possessed with this desire to rediscover the lost niggin. And he starts traveling from town to town, and he starts going from one monogain to another, one professional singer to another, and, he, and he's asking everybody, perhaps you've heard this niggin, I have to hear this niggin again. And from time to time, he hears a note, or he hears a chord, and it sounds for a moment like that might be the niggin, but it's just not the niggin. And he continues traveling for life in search of this lost niggin. The nimshul to this story which I personally could really identify with, is that the neshama, we're told, before it comes into this world, is taught kola Torah kula. And then right before it's born, the, I guess it's a malach, I don't know, gives the, gives the unborn child a little tap, and, and the, uh, the child forgets everything that he learned or she learned, and the neshama goes into the guf and descends into this world. And that neshama, at the end of the day, spends a lifetime searching for that lost niggin. It's a lifetime going through this world, this world of dimyonos, this world of illusions. And I'll share some remarks a little bit later, uh, how you really see it when you, I think when you leave yeshiva, when you go into the work world, it really is a, a world of illusions and dimyonos and false, false happiness, etc. But many of us spend a lifetime, as Rebweinberg says, draining around the world in search of that lost niggin. And we run, we run from one balmanagin to another to see if we can Somebody might be able to recreate that niggin for us. And, and who are these Bali Nagina? Could be the Yankees, could be the Mets, 
could be a mansion, could be a vacation, could be the latest iPhone gadget, etc., etc. But we spend a lifetime searching for that happiness, searching for that lost niggin. Unfortunately for many of us, and I'm, again, I'm speaking to myself, it's many years, if ever, before we discover where the true happiness is. And it's not in all those demionos. I, I certainly identify with that yid in that story. So let me just share a little background, if I may. I can identify with many of you. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I went to MTA, so it's a big cover to be here, a place I spent my formative years. I went to Shalavim. I went to YU. I just had this chus in the hallway to bump into Rav Goldvich, who I'm very excited is being uh, honored this coming Sunday night. Uh, another tzaddik who really inspired me in many ways. And then I left YU, and I got married and had children. Leah and five beautiful children. And I went into the work world. And for the past 23, 24 years, I've been in my family business where I basically head up the sales department. I travel all over the country. I oversee hundreds and hundreds of salespeople, visit customers, etc. And I must say, and this is why I really would, really excited for the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you today. Life happens when you leave Yeshiva. Life happens when you leave the base medrash. And no matter what, I'm sure many of you are in that stage of life, I still think back to it. I think it's a time of maybe even a little anxiety, a little, a little uncertainty. What do I want to do with my life? Uh, maybe I'll stay in, in learning and go into chinuch. Maybe I'll go into law, I'll go into business, medicine, all these different things. Who am I going to marry, right? It's a, it's a time of transition, a time of uncertainty. And I want to tell you, when you get out to that work world and you, get, you raise your family and you get engrossed in business and trying to make a parnasa and trying to pay the bills and then you're zochad have children and there's always... Uh, there's, there's always, you know, things that come up as you're raising your family. You're worried about your kids, your, etc. All these things happen. Life happens. And in my experience, unless a person is really, and I was not at that age, I was not a person who was as grounded as I should have been or as committed as I should have been to, to Torah and to maintaining my strong Kesher. Let me tell you something. The world pulls you away. It's like being on an escalator that's going down, right? The old, the old muscle. If you're not aggressively trying to climb it, you're, you're moving backwards. And over a period of many years, uh, I really drifted. Now, I came from a, a Torah home. As I mentioned, I had two grandfathers who were Gedolim and Torah. Uh, I went to YU. I went to Shalavim. I had that background, but I drifted. I drifted pretty far. I was, thank God, still Shomer Shabbos. I, was, I would call it, I was doing the basics, is what I was basically doing. And then an amazing thing happened. And Ramoshit Tzvi, I looked through my text last night, and I apologize publicly. Ramoshit Tzvi asked me when he invited me to, to share a, uh, a title of my remarks, and I don't think I ever did that. I didn't really think much about it. But if I were to retroactively go back and, and maybe put a title to it, perhaps it's opening your eyes and, and, and recognizing the world, hearing the knocks. And, and I was at a point in my life, this was probably about five years ago, where I felt I drifted as far as I ever had in Ruchnius. I was, I was hanging on by a thread. And I have to tell you something. When you're not connected to Torah, and when you're not listening to the knocks, and you're not seeing the world through the Demyonos, I really believe in my heart of hearts from personal experience, 
there is no possible way to experience real happiness in life as a Jew. I really believe that. We have beautiful things in our lives. We have families. We have children. We have much to be proud of and much to be happy for. But if we don't recognize where that all comes from, and we don't recognize the true MS, there's no ability to rediscover that niggin. I'm a big sports guy. I coached here at MTA. I coached basketball for 16 years. Won championships, lost games, gave my co-hosts. It was great. Really great. Had the opportunity to maybe impact the lives of some, some young, young players. But at the end of the day, real happiness in life doesn't come from winning and losing basketball games. And honestly, it doesn't even come from making money. And it doesn't come from getting the big house or the extra car. I'm telling you, it's, there's no happiness in it. But an interesting ha thing happened to me at this point about five years ago. Hashem started speaking to me. Maybe he was speaking to me earlier, but I wasn't smart enough or lucky enough to listen. And I'm very grateful to Hashem that he opened my eyes and I started to listen. I have a colleague down in Maryland who's the president of one of our sales brokerage offices, a lot of our salespeople who he oversees, and I have the opportunity from time to time to meet with him and travel with him. Happens to be a Yid, unfortunately not yet Shomer, Shomer Torah Mitzvah, but he's very, very, a very philosophical person. He knows that I'm a from Jew, and I could see he's inspired by that. And when I, when I travel with him on business, we get into these long you know, life conversations. He likes to tell me about this book that he read called The Tipping Point. It's about these transformative moments in your life that you look back on someday and you say, these are the two or three moments in my life. I could have gone this way, I could have gone that way, but because I went this way, my life changed. And I like to think of the following story as some of the tipping points in my life as Hashem started speaking to me. So my oldest son, who graduated from MTA last year, is in Shalvin this year. Uh, very proud of him and all of our children. Right at this time when I was struggling in Ruchnius, Hashem started sending me messages. And it was, it was blatantly clear to me. The first thing that happened is we were at a family reunion in upstate New York. Um, and we had some ATV vehicles, a lot of extended family, cousins, a couple hundred of us were there, barbecue, softball, the whole, the whole thing. And I knew that my son and my, my youngest brother were on an ATV about a mile down the road. And I was busy with my family talking, whatever it was, and all of a sudden in the distance, I heard this ATV vehicle kind of flying down the road. I mean flying down the road, down this dirt road. And all of a sudden, you heard a, a, a loud boom, almost like a loud explosion, and everybody started screaming. I can't describe it, but in one split second, even though I wasn't really paying attention, I knew that my son was on that ATV vehicle. And the koach that you have in a moment of, if I could say, a moment of emergency, Hashem gives us, gives us unbelievable kochos. I, I'm, I was never very fast on the basketball court, but I ran from wherever I was the 50 yards to where my son was, probably in about a second and a half. And I must tell you, that was a moment I'll never forget. I'm incredibly thankful that despite being really bloodied from head to, head to toe and a lot of scratches and scrapes and all that, ne neither he nor my brother had any serious injuries. They were probably going 50, 60 miles an hour. And in trying to avoid a building, they, they tumbled. and f It was a whole, a whole story. That moment shook me to my core. The first, the first knock that I, that I listened to. At that time in our family business, around that same time, this all happened within a period of a few months. You know, you think you're good in business, you think you have talents that you put into whatever career you, you go after, 
But at the end of the day, I'm telling you, it's all Minashamayim. It's all Minashamayim. And about five years ago, six years ago, unavoidable events in business that we had no control over happened. And our business, which, thank God, had been very successful, all of a sudden, kind of like Mahavdil, the Giants season this year, I mean, nothing more could have gone wrong. I mean, if you think about the Giants season, right? I'm not even going to get into it. It's too depressing. But there's nothing more that could go wrong, right? So that's what we were experiencing in business. To the point, and I'll say this publicly, I had some moments that I didn't know if I'd even have a house to live in. I didn't know if my family would have a business the next day. I didn't know if my, my entire extended family would have, would have a place to live. It was pretty shocking. And right at that time, I'm really struggling now. And here comes some of, my, some of my tipping points, some of my transformative moments, some of the moments that Hashem was knocking on the door. And I look back at today, and I'm so thankful for those experiences. I have a friend in the neighborhood, a few guys in the neighborhood in Teaneck, and I, I have not opened up a safe for, I don't know how many years, probably more than 10 years, other than maybe the study with my son for a Gemara test or something, where I tried to, tried to pretend I knew what I was talking about. And a friend of mine made a seum on a Friday night in Teaneck and invited a bunch of guys. I did not learn with them, but I said, all right, let me go. I'll go to a seum. And I went there on a Friday night, and Ray Przansky, some of you may know him from Teaneck, was there. He had no idea what I was going through. He had no idea the business issues, my son's accident, and other things that were going on at the time. And he said something that just... I, thought, I, I literally thought he was talking directly to me. And there was 40, 50 guys in the room. And Ray Pazansky told the story, and it's a Gemara, and I apologize, I don't know exactly where the Gemara is, but I, anyone who wants to find out, um, I'm sure either Ray Cement or Moshe Tzvi or one of your rabbis, but I'm happy to find out if you're interested. And Ray Pazansky spoke about when Hashem is trying to send you a message, there are certain levels, certain steps uh, that, that Hashem takes in, in conveying the message. And first he starts with this. And then if you don't listen, he goes here. And then if you don't listen, he goes to your money. And then if you still don't listen, Chas Hashem, he goes to your health. And I was sitting there listening to this saying, okay, this happened to me. That happened to me. That happened to me. Now he's hitting my money. Wow. Health is next. Chas Hashem. That shook me. Again, a knock on the door. Then something else very interesting. There was this book that I highly recommend everybody read uh, called Proof of Heaven by Dr. Eben Alexander. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for a number of years, and this is a true story. I travel often for business. I'm regularly in airports. And I would, for a period of six or eight months, I literally, every time I was in an airport, I would pass the Barnes Nobles or the bookstore in the airport. That book was like displayed on the front table, staring at me for months. Have you read this book? For months, and I ignored it. It looked to me like a typical um, afterlife, near-death experience story, and it's not even a Jewish author. And eh, what, what's in it for me? I didn't. I didn't look at it. One Shabbos, I come to Shul, and Rabbi Przansky says the following in his drasha with hundreds of people in Shul. He says somebody in the Shul gave me this book, and I must speak about it today in my drasha. Oh, okay, my my antenna's up now because I've been hearing about this book. And I'll just give you a, a really quick glimpse at the book. The story is about Dr. Eben Alexander, 
He was or is a Harvard-trained uh, neurosurgeon, the top in his field, the top brain surgeon out there, one of the top for sure, living in North Carolina in a mansion with his, he's in his 40s at the time, living with his young kids and his wife and probably his two dogs and his five you know, uh, Lamborghinis and the whole story. And Dr. Alexander was a self-proclaimed atheist. And he was convinced that, hey, I'm a genius. I went to Harvard. I'm the one saving the world. There is no God, etc., etc. And then he had an experience, Misa Shahaya. He woke up one day. He was in perfect health, slim, young, and was not feeling well. Within an hour, things progressed very quickly. He was in a deep, deep coma. They rushed him to the hospital. The doctors told his family he has basically zero chance to survive. He spent a week deep, deep, deep in a coma, and his family was praying and crying, all this, all this type of stuff. And the doctor said, if by, by any chance he does survive, he's going to have such brain damage, he's going to basically be a vegetable the rest of his life. A week, week and a half later, out of nowhere, this doctor wakes up from his coma. He is perfectly fine. And within a couple months, he's back performing brain surgeries. And the point of the story is, he says that he remembers very, very vividly everything that happened to him that week when he was in the coma. And he goes on to describe, it's really worth reading, this, this whole scene, and he goes to this next world, and he sees these angels, and he describes in great detail what he went through. And he said that that world was the most amazing happiness and simple. He's never experienced something like that in his life. And he felt during the week this pull, this pull of his relatives who were, you know, they're not Jewish, but they were praying, they were in their way davening, whatever it was. And he was told up in that next world, your, your tough kid in the world is not done, you're going back. Okay, sounds great, right? But here's what got me. Right, Przansky goes on to say, and again, I apologize, I don't know the exact where it is, but I could find out. There's a Gemara, and I, it might have been Sanhedrin, I'm not sure. Rebzanski says there's a Gemara that describes what happens when you leave the world, including what happens when a non-Jew leaves the world. And the story that this doctor tells in his book, according to Rebzanski, matches exactly what the Gemara says. That really got me. I said, wow. I was lucky enough after Shul to literally that day find somebody who had the book at home. I think within a day or so I read the book. And now I was looking at the story through the eyes of the Torah, through the eyes of what Rebzanski had said. Another knock. And now the big moments. And in anticipation of my visit today, I re-watched this last night. I would highly recommend anybody do, does this. I'm not here to tell you to go on your computers or YouTube or whatever. But if you happen to be on YouTube, Rabbi, Rabbi Friend at the last CMI Shas 2012, maybe some of you heard it, said something that if there was one line that changed my life, it was one thing he said. And it was a 22-minute uh, speech that my friend gave. I think I paid attention more to that one simply because it's maybe the only one in English, so I really didn't understand any of the other ones. But why did I go to the CMI Shas? So there are many people along my journey who played a role in different ways. My father, who's another role model of mine, is not somebody who, uh, who has spent you know many, many hours in learning, but he does unbelievable chesed. Big, big belt. Stuck a uh, leader in the Jewish community. A real role model for me. And my father really, really likes to go to the Siyama Shas every seven years. It's something he likes to do. So I went with him. And again, this is still at that time where I'm at my lowest point. And basically what my friend said is, you know, in life, 
There are things that are important and there are things that aren't so important. When you are trying to accomplish something that's important to you, you need to have a plan. So if you're building a house, you have to have blueprints. If you're starting a business, you have to have a business plan. If you're just going across the street to buy a piece of pizza, you probably don't really need an organized plan for that. And Rabbi Franz spoke about this boss cold that the Medrash describes, this boss cold that every day lurks in the back of the mind of every Jew, each on our own levels and our own ways, and basically asks us every day, we can't get rid of it, every day, what are you doing to have a kesher with a Kaddish Baruch Hu? What effort are you putting in to have that connection? I started to think to myself, I'm not very happy with myself. I'm not very happy with my lack of connection with Hashem. And I'm making zero effort. Okay. So he says we need to have a plan. And I put my friend in a much more dramatic way than I am. And he says, so I'd like to give you a plan. Tomorrow morning, 90,000 people in the stadium. First, second blot of, of uh, Daf Beis, of Brachos, Daf Yomi. And if you can't do that, if you really can't do that, Amud Yomi. And if you can't do that, Mishnah Buri Yomi. And if you can't do that, Mishnah Yomi. And then he said something that like literally, like an arrow. He screamed out, but something a day, something a day. I remember thinking to myself, I do nothing a day. How am I going to expect to have this Kesher? And that was, that was a tremendous tipping point in my life. So what happened? The next day, the next day I said, okay, I'm going to give it a try. Daf Yomi. To be honest, I had tried in the past. I wasn't so serious about it. I didn't really make it past Daf Yud. But this particular time, let me try. I actually went through it myself with the Art Scroll Gemara, got through Brachos, a lot of inspiring stories, and Brachos is a very mis- uh, inspiring Masechta, and I got through it. And what did I do? I gathered a few of my friends at the end of Masechta's Brachos, not guys I was learning with, just random guys learning Daf Yomi, and we decided to make a Siam. And we invited all the kids in the neighborhood and all, the, all our friends, because if we can make a big deal about something as crazy as a Super Bowl, why not make a big deal about a Siam? So we made a Siam. But then something else happened. Masecha Shabbos, now it's moving into Masecha's Erevin, kind of separates the men from the boys a little bit. Um, my oldest son, Jonathan, was having his bar mitzvah. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys are married yet, but, you know, you're married, you're making a bar mitzvah, your wife's pulling you in a million directions, your kids. You're... All of a sudden I look up one day, wow, I really haven't done Dafyomi in about ten days. I'm, I'm, I'm dead in the water. Because Dafyomi, by the way, doesn't wait for anybody. It doesn't stop. So I'm struggling now. So for the next six months, I'm learning 10 blot. I'm missing 10 blot. I'm on, I'm off, I'm all over the place. And then that spring, I, I go to my niece's bat mitzvah in Florida. Rabbi Yaakov Gibber used to be a rabbi here. So his daughter's bat mitzvah. And I go over to an uncle of mine. I, this was like, I didn't even plan to do this. And I go to my uncle. And let me tell you something about this uncle. He is not only one of the very top, top lawyers in his field in Maryland, very, very successful attorney. He's a humongous, humongous Tamachachim and a Magad Shir in Dafyomi in Baltimore for decades. So if I'm going to go over to anybody to tell him, guess what? I'm stopping. I'm off. I'm done with Dafyomi. I think he'd be the last person I'd want to do that to. But he's the person I went to. Hashem's pointing me in all these different directions. And he sat with me for an hour. He says, no, you're not. You're not stopping. But you're doing it wrong. And he says to me, for you, you need to, go, you need to find the Daf Yomi Shir, and you need to commit to going every day. Like it's a business meeting. I'm not capable of really holding myself accountable doing it on my own for too long. Go to a Shir. So what do I do? In full disclosure, 
it had probably been a number of years since I regularly went to Minyan in the morning during the week. You know, there's certain, um, there's certain Jews out there, not too many of them, I was one of them, who are kind of like Shabbos Jews, right? Go on Shabbos, Yotze, again, no learning. So I look around Teaneck, big Malcolm Torah, big YU community. I decide I'm going to find the earliest Dafyomi share in the whole, the whole Teaneck, 5.30 in the morning at B'nai Shurn. And by the way, I was not an early morning person. And pretty funny, I'm all excited, I'm going to this year, right? But two weeks later, my wife says something pretty funny to me. She says, you know something, for two weeks you haven't stopped talking about going to this 5.30 a.m. shear. But the funny thing is you haven't gone once yet. So here's the deal. You don't ever have to go. If you don't want to go, don't go. I really don't care. But if you don't go tomorrow morning, I don't want to ever hear about it again. Ooh, a challenge, right? So I went the next morning. And I'll never forget this gentleman who I admire greatly, a lot older than me and really knows how to learn, says to me after the shear, you know, at 5.30 in the morning, it's not usual that somebody just happens to be strolling across, you know, along the street here and sees this shear. Let me go check it out. So you made a conscious effort to come here today. Is this something you're going to do? I said, you know something? I was here today. I plan to be here tomorrow, one day at a time. After a number of weeks, I found myself, I'd been going pretty much every day when I wasn't traveling. A few months go by. And I start noticing something else. Okay, I'm at Dafyomi every day, 5.30 to 6.30. Now I'm staying for the 6.30 chakras, right? I'm already there. Okay. I start seeing a lot of guys, unfortunately, guys my age in the shul, who are coming to say Kaddish. That's an amazing thing to me, the whole, the whole separate discussion, how you can have guys who are not connected to learning. Everybody takes Kaddish very seriously. It's like they'll change their life for that one year to never miss a Kaddish. So I start saying to myself, I want to have a Kesher of the Kaddish Baruch Hu, right? Why do I have to chasmish show and wait someday until I have to say Kaddish? Why not start now? Shachris became regular. Mincha of the Minion became regular. Marv of the Minion became regular. And then one day I'm in the Swarm store in Tinek and I bump into the Ramchal's Derech Hashem. I remember saying, wow, I kind of remember this from my yeshiva days. It seemed a little intense. I don't know. I didn't really take it seriously. Let me get it. I, I could not put down the Ramchal's Derech Hashem. I'm a huge Ramchal person, by the way. Anyway, having said that, I could not put down the Derech Hashem. One thing led to another, you know, different chavrusas, different learning. Again, knocks, life-changing moments. And I can only tell you, and I want to be very clear, I have a long, long way to go on this journey. I'm, I'm barely a beginner. But the point is, when I have those moments where I feel like dialed in, right, and I'm sure your Abayim could speak more to this, I know there's good days, there's bad days, there's ups, there's downs, there's falling, there's getting back up again. But when I have those moments where I feel like I'm on my game and I get up for, da- for the Dafshir that morning and I go to Minyan and maybe I learn a little Kitzur Shulchan Yomi, maybe I learn a little bit Der Hashem or Mesil Sesharm or whatever it is, uh, another favorite of mine, which I'll speak about in a moment, Cholos Alvavos. When I have those moments, let me tell you guys something. There is no happiness in the world like that. Feeling that you are, for a brief moment, achieving maybe some level of being, being dovic with Hashem. Again, I'm speaking from experience. And by the way, uh, Baruch Hashem, ever since those moments when I recognize those knocks, business Baruch Hashem turned around as strong as it ever has. My son's doing great. Everything I was struggling with in my life at that time, total turnaround. Exactly tied to those times where I listened to those knocks. Really, really unbelievable to me. Life-changing moments. 
listening to the knocks and recognizing the truth the truth of the world I'd like to uh, just share one very brief Svasemis and Svasemis is something very dear to me um, for those who may not know the Svasemis was the Ger Rebbe I believe at the turn of the 20th century early late 1800s, early 1900s had this chus to be by his kever this past June I was on that Eish uh, Kodesh trip with Rav Weinberger uh, many Kivrei Tzadikim, and I must say for me personally, being at the, have this picture of the Svas Emes' kever at sunset, the Ohel of the Svas Emes, it's buried next to the Chidush Arim, and really an emotional experience for me. There's a uh, Rosh Hashiva, the Yeshiva Gedol and Tinek, um, I think Rav Moshe Tzvi and, and Rai Cement both know him, uh, Rav Eliyahu Roberts, another person, another Tzadik who's been very inspiring to me, and I have this chus with a handful of guys every Friday morning, I was just telling somebody out in the hallway, many, many Friday mornings at 6.15 to 7.15, some Friday mornings at 5.15 to 6.15. We learn in the Russia she was dining room every Friday, Svasemis. And just as a little commercial break before I share a line from the Svasemis, I travel very often. I could be in Chicago Monday, I could be in North Carolina Tuesday, I could be somewhere else Wednesday. Uh, and by the way, um, in all my car rides and my plane trips and everything else, I went from literally thousands of hours of Mike and the Mad Dog. By the way, he had an incredible rant on the Giants yesterday. That's for later. Um, I went from thousands of hours of listening to Mike and the Mad Dog, really Dimionos at the end of the day, to doing nothing but listening to Shirim on my phone every time I'm in a plane or a car, whether it's Rav Moshe Tzvi Shirim, Rav Weinberg Shirim, uh, or, or many others. So that's, uh, that's a wonderful thing. But the one... Seder or Shir or whatever it is that I never miss is my Friday morning Svasemis Kabura with a few guys and with uh, Rabbi Roberts. The reason for that is because I don't travel Fridays, so it's on early Friday morning. Every Friday morning I come into the Rosh Hashiva's dining room. I love it that it's literally in his house. And he's got this unbelievable painting on the wall. And I purposely position myself in the same seat so that I'm facing this painting. The Rosh Hashiva's on the right, my Svasemis, my cup of coffee all my needs. And the painting is of this old European shtetl, if you can picture it. I actually have it on my phone. And it's a little cobblestone pathway. And you see through the window a family standing near the candles. You can imagine it's Arab Shabbos. And the Shamus is knocking with a hammer on the, on the, on the wall, that, on, the, on the doorpost. That's the picture. That says something to me every week. I travel the world. I'm out in the... Uh, craziness of the business world I'm out in the ocean being pulled in a lot of directions but Friday morning I come I see that painting and what it says to me every week it's time for the ship to come home Shabbos is a few hours away that's the that's the setting where we where we do Svasemis so I just want to share one or two lines from the Svasemis about this idea of listening to the knocks and recognizing the Emes so there's a famous Medrash the, the Svasemis quotes it in Lech Lecha in uh Tough Reish Lamed Hay, the Swasemis is uh, sequenced by year of when he said these various Torahs. And the Swasemis quotes a uh, famous Medrash. I had not learned it before, but interesting Medrash, which speaks about how Avram came to this Bira Dolekas, this burning house, this burning structure. And he sees that the structure is burning, and Avram recognizes that there has to be a um, Balhabira. There has to be a Somebody who did this. This can't just be totally random. But the Lushan that the Medrash uses is, and this really spoke to me, Shimi Bas Uri Vahate Aznacha. So the Svasemis asks a very interesting question. 
That's a double lushan of Shmiya, double lushan of hearing, right? Shimi basuri, bate oznacha. Like, I guess, like, bend your ear and listen a little more carefully. What's this idea of the double, the double lushan? What the Swasemis goes on to say is, ki batchila hakadosh baruchu mashmiel adam ataara and he goes on to, to, to explain further. What the Swasemis basically says is, the first Shmiya, the first time we stop and listen, are basically, if I could use my own terminology, the knocks. The knocks. We go through life, we hear the knocks. Our first obligation is to be Zoche, to stop and recognize those knocks. And recognize that those knocks are coming from the Balabira up above. And then... Once we pause, we block everything out, and we recognize, whoa, I better listen. My life, my life is not where I want it to be, but I'm, I'm hearing some knocks. Then we bend our ear further, and we get the actual message from a Baruch Barfu. And I thought that was a really a powerful, um, a powerful, almost balchuva theme. Just a few more minutes. I don't know how long I'm going, going, going a little over here, but uh, just want to want to share. Uh, uh, just a couple more anecdotes, if I can, then I'll then I'll wrap up. Another colleague of mine, gentleman named Jim Robinson, Irish Catholic, another salesperson I travel with often. One day we're driving on a two-hour drive to go see a customer, and uh, we start talking about our daily routines. And I'm telling him I go to my synagogue, I go to a class at 5:30 in the morning, back and forth. He's getting very interested in this, and he starts. He's insisting that I tell him what this is all about. And I'm changing the topic. No, he keeps coming back to it. Jim, do you really want me to? You really want me to tell you the truth? Yeah, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth, right? So I said to him, "Let's just analyze something very at a very basic level." And I'm sure you guys have thought about this, right? What is the cycle of life, right? We spend the first, I don't know, 15, 16, 18. Let's say first first 13 years of your of your life going to elementary school, right? And we make our kids work hard. We got to get good grades. We got to get into the high school of our choice. And then we spend the next four years slaving away in high school. We got to get into that college. Got to do it, right? Um, then we go to college. You guys are there, right? I don't need to speak to you. You know, you know the drill. We go through college. What am I going to do in my life? I got to get that job. I got to get into graduate school. I got to. I got to do all these things, right? And you do. By the way, you do. You do. You have to do your stablis. I'm not trying to say you don't. You do. Okay. Can't just sit and learn and daven and just sit in a corner and hope it all works out. I think you have to hear Ishtavus also, right? We know where it comes from, but you gotta okay. But why do we do that? Because we want to earn we want to earn a living to provide for our family. And what are we gonna do with that living? All right, we might buy a house, we might do this and that. But ultimately what are we trying to do? We wanna have money so we can send our kids to to you know to school. I'm not even gonna say yeshiva, which obviously is what it is, but let's just talk about school for a minute. And why do we want our kids to go to school? So they can get into a good high school. So they can get into a good college. So they can get a job and make money. And it's like, wait a second. It's like, okay, so life is like this big frustrating circle. Like, what's the, what's the end game here? So I said, Jim, that's what, that's what this is all about for me. At the end of the day, you know, I love doing business with you. But this is, this is not who I am. This is not who I am, right? There's a deeper meaning to life. Which just reminds me, Rav Judah Michelle, I recently heard him speak, and he spoke about if you were to make a LinkedIn profile for, Ab- for, for Avram Avinu, right? All the things Avram Avinu did in his life. He was a diplomat, he was a politician, he was a business person. You can go on and on through all the stories. You can make a really nice LinkedIn profile. 
I don't know the source or the makor, but I know I've I, I've heard or learned that uh, it says I don't know who says it, but the but the, the first time somebody or something is mentioned in the Torah, the context that that person or object is mentioned in is the real essence of the meaning, right? I don't know where that comes from, but so if I'm not mistaken, and R- R- Michelle said the first time Avram is mentioned, Ivri Anochi. What is Avram at the end of the day? He's all these different things, but he's an Ivri, right? And I try to think about that a lot. I think it's the Kutzker who says, and I've heard of Weimberger, and I think Ramoshit Tzvi quote this as well, the Kutzker uh, has a famous story where somebody goes to him, and the Kutzker says, what do you do? And he says, I'm a lawyer. And the Kutzker says, okay, but what do you do? Rabbi, I'm a lawyer. This goes on for a couple frustrating minutes until the Kutzker says, you're not a lawyer, you're a Jew at the end of the day. Being a lawyer is a part of who you do. And so I try to think about that a lot as I travel in business and as I had this conversation with Jim Robinson about the meaning of life, there's got to be something deeper to it. I just want to share a couple of uh, kind of personal proofs that I like to fall back on and then I'll just conclude with a quick story. Do I have two more minutes, Ramosha Tzvi? We're okay? Okay. Two more minutes? We're okay? So... I don't want to uh, say that these are proofs, but a, a couple of quick stories. One of my favorite svarim to learn, and I learned it a few years ago, incredibly inspiring, and I really am trying now to go back through it again, I just started again, uh, is Chovos Halvavos. Chovos Halvavos is all about looking at the world and really just opening your eyes and understanding where this all comes from. And I have an amazing Chovos Halvavos story that involves a friend of mine. Gentleman named Adam Meyerson. He and his wife lived in Teaneck for a few years. Unfortunately, well, fortunately for them, unfortunately for me, they recently moved down to Florida. But I'm a big believer that Adam Adam Meyerson passed through my life to inspire me and to send me a message. One of the most inspiring people I met. Adam Meyerson is about six two. He's a, a kind of a weightlifter. It was one of his hobbies. He's crazy built up. Uh, really looks like a Mossad agent. And he's got an amazing story. Adam Meyerson was, and he's probably about my age, was traveling through life. He was not, in his case, he was not raised Shoma Shabbos. He didn't know any better. He had nothing to do with Torah mitzvahs. And as he said, he was going through the work world. He was making money. He was successful. He had a group of friends that were all successful. They were all competing with each other. They all bought the next sports car and the next this. And he tells me the following story. One day I was sitting in a Trafe restaurant with my group of friends, and we're all talking about our, the next toy we bought, the next car we bought, the next this, the next that. He says, my mind drifted, and I started staring at this banana on the table. This is a typical uh, Victor Miller, Chobosovavo story, but a true story, somebody I knew well. And he says, I'm staring at this, at this banana, and he says, wait a second, you mean to tell me that before that banana is ripe, it's green, so it's not ready yet. And then on its own, it turns yellow, the banana's ripe. It's got this peel on the outside that I can't eat, but it protects what's on the inside. And on the inside is this, this uh, food that's incredibly tasty and nourishing and vitamins and minerals. All, and he starts analyzing this, kind of like the Balabira story. He says, in the background, as he hears his friend talking about the newest Porsche, he says, somebody created that banana. And I am missing the purpose of life. And from that transformative moment in Adam Meyerson's story, he became one of the most inspired Bali Chubas I've ever met. He sat in B'nai Ashurin for much of the last five years or so. 
learning with any guy who would give him five minutes to learn with him. Talking about God. I had him over at my house for a Rosh Hashanah very early on when he moved to Teaneck, him and his wife. And he was just starting this journey with no background at all. And he's a very deep, deep person. We start talking about God and life. And he's, you've got to give me stuff to read. You're like an inspired Jew. And I take him in my, uh, my, my home-based medrash. I don't know why I pulled out, um, I think I pulled out Derech Hashem, the little small size with the English. I say, you know what, Adam? Just read the English. Go through it. A couple months later, on my, uh, my door outside my house is a little bag with a beautifully written note with a copy of my, uh, my Derech Hashem. I think even a bottle of wine. I don't drink wine. With an unbelievable thank you note. This book changed my life. What's next? Boom. Chobos Alvavos and on and on and on. Unbelievable. Stories like that. Recognizing, hearing the knocks. Two, two other things I'd like to share. And you could, go, you could spend hours talking about this stuff. But just two things I think about. I once heard a, a rabbi from Brooklyn, and I, I don't remember the name, but he was speaking about all these, I don't know if the word proofs is the right way to say it, but all these undeniable facts about Hashem and Torah. And he said, imagine the following. I'm not a mathematician, but he said, if you take a deck of 52 cards and you randomly throw that deck on the floor and it's going to land in a certain sequence, and then you try to take those cards, mix them up, and try to spend the rest of your life recreating that exact sequence. According to him, the statistics are in the trillions to recreate that 52-card sequence. If you can't recreate a sequence of 52 cards, imagine trying to recreate the human eyeball. Something far more sophisticated than 52 cards, right? And you could take this on and on. I mean, the, the reality is undeniable. And then finally, I'd like to share kind of one thing I think about. In my life, I have days where I'm on, I have days where I'm off. I have days where I'm doing well, less well, etc. But I must say, on the days when I get up and I go to that 5.30 daf, and I do a little learning on my own, and I go to the early minion, and then I come home at 7 o'clock to first get my kids out to school, before I even start my business day, it is the greatest feeling in the world. The greatest feeling. It's not even, like 10 championships don't even come close to that. There's nothing that comes close to that feeling. Now I ask myself, if this wasn't a hundred thousand percent MS, why do, why does my neshama feel that incredible simcha? Right? What's the pasuk Yismach Hashem? What's the pasuk Yismach Hashem Mavakshilev? Is that right? Did I say that right? Um, you know, when you when you're when you're on the journey, when you're trying, when you're searching, but you know that you know you know you're searching for for Hashem to be Davuk and Hashem. There's no simcha like that. I would just like to, uh, to end with one final story. One last story. And another Weinberger story, he told it last Purim, at the Purim Masiba. And it really hit me. And if I could just leave you with this thought. <clears throat> the story, again, another mushal, is back 100, 200 years ago in Russia. Word was sent to the military base that the evil Russian czar, in two weeks' time, was going to come inspect the military base. And over those couple weeks, the, the soldiers on the army base, they're so nervous. They're making all their achanos. They're making all their preparations. The czar is coming. Everything has to be perfect. The day the czar is supposed to come, they buckle under the pressure. They're very nervous about the czar coming. They all go out drinking. By the way, Rav Weinberg told us on Purim night. It was a pretty, pretty appropriate time to tell this. As a couple guys on the, around the table were uh, kind of a little tipsy. And as... As the day comes, they get very nervous. They all go out drinking. And as the czar shows up a few hours later, 
There are hundreds and hundreds of soldiers on both sides of the road, all, all passed out drunk. Wow. The, the moment, and everybody, everybody's passed out drunk. And the Tsar's assistant gets out of the wagon, gets out of the vehicle, and says to the Tsar, I'll just shoot them all for you. Let's just shoot them all. And the Tsar says, no, you know what? Wait a minute. You know what? Sometimes in life, there's ups and downs. There's moments of strength, moments of weakness, moments of nervousness. He goes, every now and then I have a drink too. Every now and then I fall down. He says, they're okay. But this one right over here, and he points to one particular soldier. This one right over here, this one I want you to shoot. That's strange. Like, what's the difference between this one and all the others? And the Tsar says there's one big difference. If you look at all these soldiers, they may have fallen, they may have passed out, but they're all facing the army base. They were struggling to get back. They had a goal. They had a derech. They had a way in life. They fell, but they knew where they were going. This one right here, he's facing the bar. He had no desire to get back to the army base. And let me just leave you guys with this one thought, if I may. Right now, you're all in yeshiva. I'm incredibly jealous of each of you. I'd love to go back and have the opportunity to maybe take my time in yeshiva a little more seriously. You guys are sitting with the emes. There's going to come a day, as Rav Moshe Tzvi said, that you'll all be zocha to move on to the next stage of life. And that's a good thing. That's something to look forward to, something to aspire to. I might, you might be something in the professional world. It might be something else. But I'm going to tell you from experience, when you leave the walls of the base medrash, there's a big world out there. And the world, you get into that ocean. It's like being on a, a little rowboat in the middle of a big ocean. If you're not rowing hard, that ocean's going to pull you in a lot of directions because life happens. And that's how Kaddish Baruch has set up the world. That's how the world is set up. There's business struggles, there's business ups and downs, there's family ups and downs, there's kids. There's, you know, I used to think when I was in college, oh, when I get that job and I'm making a salary, and when I find my wife and I start building my family, I'm done, I'm all set. Life is, life is grand. But Hashem doesn't work that way. And what I'm learning now in life is that, and this is a beautiful thing, every stage of life, there's the next daiga, there's the next worry, there's the next challenge. You're worried about business things. You're worried about your kids. And when this kid's doing great, you're worried about this kid. And with each kid, there's all different challenges. And you're, and you're building your family. And you're, you're involved in your community. And a million things happen that really pull you in a lot of directions. The challenges never stop. The ups and downs never stop. Right now, the challenge in life is, what am I going to do in my career? What am I gonna, who am I going to marry? It's, but then there's more challenges to come. And I want to tell you something. There's only one way to discover that niggin in life. There's only one way to taste a little bit of that happiness. There's only one way to feel fulfilled. And it's not about making that million dollars. It's not about the only thing is when you recognize the knocks and you open your eyes and you listen and you understand there's a balabira and you struggle to have a kesher, you struggle to have a connection and be davik and Hashem. That's the greatest source of happiness, the greatest source of comfort, the greatest respite anybody could ever have. I just want to thank you again for having me here today. Um, if anybody has afterwards questions, thoughts, comments, things I, I should be learning, please, uh, you know, come find me and uh, I'd love to hear it. Thank you very much.